Good morning, y'all. Feedback, okay. So, Scott kind of stole my 10-minute introduction, but <laughs> I'll re-say it. So, for you who don't know, my name is Jackson Arno. Uh, I just finished my freshman year of college. Like Pastor Scott said, I'm studying chemical engineering. Uh, currently, though, I am at RCCC. I am building up some transfer credits because, you know, just had to choose that private out-of-state school. Oh, yeah. Uh, I am working this summer here as the children's ministry intern along with Abigail Barfield. Honestly, she's the reason this ministry runs the way it does because I forget the day half the times, so much less what we need to do. So, But it's been a joy serving here this summer. I've enjoyed every second of it. It's been a blast. Uh, favorite part easily is to be going to Center Kid with these kids. I mean, I, we went with such a great group, both the adults and the kids. My favorite and funniest part of it has to be going with Mr. Will Lightly here, uh, my preschool teacher, 15, 16 years ago. And then we got to take the kids together. Sorry if I made you feel old there. <laughs> it was a blast. I, I highly encourage any of you have any kids, third through fifth grade, send your kids to Center Kid. It's, it's an amazing experience for everyone. All right. Well, that's enough about me. Let's get into this. So, if you open your Bibles, as Pastor Scott said, 2 Timothy 4, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 8. So, while you guys find that, I'm going to give a quick introduction on 2 Timothy. It was written by Paul as his second letter to Timothy, hence the name 2 Timothy, which was written around 64 to 67 AD. There's no exact pinpoint, but we know it's sometime between then. It was the last letter Paul was able to write before his death. It was during his second imprisonment and uh, second imprisonment in Rome. And it is one of the three canonical pastoral epistles in the Bible. Pastoral epistles are letters that Paul wrote to pastors of churches dictating how to govern the church and how to lead them. Um, there's other ones that people debate to be pastoral epistles like Philemon, but it's not considered a canonical pastoral epistle due to the nature of it. While Philemon was a leader of the church in Calais, he, Paul was not writing about how to govern the church, he was asking Philemon to take back a bondservant that had fled. So that's why it's not considered one of the pastoral epistles. But getting on back, back on the topic of 2 Timothy, the purpose of this letter is a call of strength and perseverance through trying times. It's to urge Timothy to continue the fight of the faith, even after Paul's death. Using Paul's own life as an example, he calls on Timothy to follow in his footsteps and asks only of Timothy what Paul himself had done. It's a theme throughout these verses. When Paul gives Timothy this ultimate charge, it's to go and preach the word to others. If you will stand for the reading of God's word now. So, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they accumulate themselves, teachers, to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and all you've provided us. Thank you for allowing us to congregate here, both online and in person, safely and without worry. I want to thank you for the opportunity you've allotted me and being able to come up here today and spread your message. 
And I pray that these words find itching ears, open minds, and ready hearts. In your name, amen. So I want to start by breaking down these verses. Look at what Paul is saying here. So I want to look at the first two verses first. Verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Paul starts this charge with the brunt of his message. Preach the word to others. We see Paul charge us in the presence of God, not to worry about those around us, both believers and non. He says this because the thoughts and opinions of those who are not Christ, in the end, ultimately do not matter. He is telling us, in the presence of God, that's who he's charging you in front of, because that's all that matters. So, the only opinion that matters is God's, and he verbalizes this by following up the call to say God is both the judge of the living and the dead, and God's kingdom is what we should be concerned with reaching. Not pleasing the people around us. Then in verse 2, he goes about to tell us how to spread this word. He goes about to tell us how to take control of this church. So he starts off by using six commanding verbs. He tells us to preach, to be ready, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, and to have patience. These are the six key verbs that Paul uses here. So let's look at what he means. Let's start off with the first one, to preach. This could be easy to kind of tune out for a lot of people. We see, like I said, this is one of the pastoral epistles. It is a letter to a pastor of a church on how to govern and lead a church. So it's very easy for a lot of people to just tune it out. I mean, 95% of people probably don't want to be pastors. So why do they need to know how to preach? But you also have to think of the times. Preach back then just meant to teach, to spread the word. It meant to go out and tell the gospel to others. So that's what he's calling us to do. Not, he's not calling everyone here to be pastors and go start their own church. He's just telling everyone to go out and teach the word to others. And that's what he means when he says to preach. So he uses this command to call both believers and not. He's calling the believers as a call to faith to preach, to teach, to learn, to listen. We have a duty as believers, both to preach, but also to listen. Pastor Scott will touch on that next week a little bit. But it's a mainly a call to believers. He's saying, don't be content. Don't be complacent in your faith. Don't just show up, listen to what has to be said, and then walk away. Take what you learn and go tell it to others. It's not just about what you hear. It's also about what you say. So he's calling those who believe and commanding them to continue to do so and live out what is being told to them in this passage. We then look at his call to be ready. And he makes sure to say here, be ready in season and out. He's calling us to always be ready and prepared to teach the word. In season and out. When it's convenient and when it's not. It's not just, oh, I'm at church so I can talk to someone. No, it's talking to the person on the side of the road. It's when you're with your family. Sure, it might be a little embarrassing when you're out in public to say the word. And a lot of people fear that. A lot of people don't want to go out, say something to a coworker because they don't know what they'll think of them. Or they won't say something to someone on the side of the street because they're with people and don't want to get judged. Paul tells us in season and out, when it's convenient and when it's not, when you want to and when you don't. It's a call to be ready, always. Because you never know who needs to hear it 
You never know what that person's going through and what weight your words can have on them. Then we see the most important commands he gives us right here, the three key verbs, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. It's a common theme of Paul's letters, especially throughout these pastoral epistles. It's no coincidence that in the fact, in the three letters sent to church leaders outlining how to teach and run a church, that these verbs are constantly repeated. They're key to understanding how to spread the word. We see in 1 Timothy 5.20, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that you may take, so may others may take the warning. Again, in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Titus 1.13. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. In Titus 2.15. They, these, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. I think, give or take, 15 pages of the Bible. Paul calls us to do these things. Constantly persistent. He's very often calling us to do these three things and take charge with these verbs. So let's look at what these mean. So to reprove something and rebuke something. They're not common words. I know I've heard exhort before, you know, just exhort energy and stuff, but repuve and rebuke, they're not common. You know, it's not everyday language. So let's learn what they mean. So to reprove it. To reprove something basically means to censor. To censor someone or reprimand them for what they're doing. We need to critique the behaviors that are not desirable to the Lord and call out the people who practice such things. It's easy. Just call out false teachers. Find your truth. Know the truth. And call out people who are doing the wrong. It's a warning to people. We see back to the First Timothy 5.20. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take the warning. Censor them before everyone, not just in private, to everyone who is around. Because when you reprimand someone and do it in private, they might go out and do it again. But I know if I get scolded for something in public, one, I'm not going to want to do it again because I don't want to be embarrassed like that again. But everyone else who sees it, they're not going to want to do what I did because they want to be scolded like me. So you need to reprove people. Take, show others the warning. Censor them. Then we see the call to rebuke. Though it's the call to rebuke. It means those who do not believe and practice false teaching, we need to critique their behaviors we are, that are not desirable to the Lord. Call out people. We see in Titus the one thirteen. This, if this witness is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so they may be sound in faith. You gotta rebuke them. Make them sound in faith. Let them know what they're doing is wrong. Call them out for it. Because once they know what they're doing is wrong, they'll stop. But if you just censor them, tell them, no, don't say that. But don't tell them that it's also wrong. They're going to keep saying it. They need to know why they need to stop saying it. Make them sound in their faith. Make them understand that their faith and their knowledge in the Bible comes from these things. You need to teach them the truth. And that takes us into the third verb, to exhort, to spread the message. It's to give out, to encourage. We see in Titus 2.15, then these are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. 
encourage. Spread the word. Let people know what you're doing is wrong. Let them know what they're saying is wrong. But then tell them what's right. Don't leave it at the first two. You have to incorporate that third. Because alone, these things hold a lot of weight. But together, that's how you truly preach the word. That's how you truly teach someone. Think of a kid tying his shoelaces. If you give a kid a shoe and tell him, tie it. Never done it before. Kid doesn't even know what a shoelace is. He's probably going to tie it wrong. You know, your simple two little bunny ears sticking out. They're not going to be able to tie it right. They don't know how to do it. So you go and tell them what you did was wrong. That's not how you tie a shoe. Well, what good does that do for the kid? He still doesn't know the right way to tie a shoe. And then you hear these other people telling him how to tie a shoe. And they're wrong, too. So you tell them. They're wrong. Don't listen to them. Again, he still doesn't know the right way to do it. You're doing these things individually, but you need to put them together. You need to close his ears to the people that are telling him wrong. And also let him know his way isn't necessarily the right way. But then tell him what the right way is. You need to put everything together. You need to put these three verbs into practice so that this kid can know how to tie a shoe. Same goes with teaching the Bible, teaching the word to people. You need to close their ears to false teachings. Tell them what they're doing is wrong, but also show them how to do what's right. And then we see the sixth verb, have patience. It's very important. Teaching isn't something that commands instantaneous results. I know, for me at least, when I'm in class, listening to a lecture, I don't understand everything that was said instantly. It takes time. I have to ask questions. I have to go in, look at it myself, study on my own. I can't just hear something once and instantly understand everything. So you need to have patience when you teach. Understand that these same principles apply to other people. You're not going to be able to say something and it instantly click in their minds. Because that's just not how that works. Don't expect instant outcomes, and don't be discouraged when you speak to someone and your words don't resonate instantly. Kevin Knighthead said something to me recently relating to this, and we were talking about VBS. And he had told me that when it comes to these things, is sowing the ground and planting the seeds, you rarely get to see the outcomes, the fruits of your labor. That doesn't mean that isn't there. If you're planting, think of a tree. You plant a seed. Just because you planted that seed and didn't see that tree sprout doesn't mean it never did. It takes time for it to grow. It needs water. It needs sunlight. It needs to be fed things in order for it to be able to grow. Same principles apply here. Just because you planted the seed and sowed the ground doesn't mean what you did is going to make it sprout, but it will eventually. And maybe you are the person that says that final thing. You put on that last straw. You break the camel's back. And that person comes to Jesus from your words. It's an amazing experience. But it won't always be like that. And you have to know that. You have to have patience with your teaching. And understand that things don't come instantly. But your words do have weight. And they are moving people. Because God always takes place. But as long as you teach using these five verbs, and you do so with patience, you're fulfilling this call. So nextly, I want to look at verses 3 and 4 and see why Paul gives us this charge. Paul writes, 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's laying it all out for you. We are being told, plain and simple, come a point when people start leading their own lives, wander away from the truths, find myths, and start listening to other people. We see warnings like this all the time. Acts chapter 20 and Matthew 7 both show us these same warnings. Even 1 Timothy 1 is dedicated solely on how Timothy should deal with false teachers within the church. Within two letters, Paul twice warns Timothy against false teachers because it's important because we need to know how to deal with them and we need to know these warnings. We need to see that these things are happening and be wary of them. It's common themes written about by Paul because we need to be cautious. Not only to protect ourselves against those trying to lead us away, but to see people dealing with these struggles and bring them back. You find people everywhere you look picking and choosing parts of the Bible to believe. They'll find things that suit their own needs but ignore the things that go against what they think. You see, especially with Old Testament scripture, you'll see people just start ignoring things, throwing them out. It's outdated. It doesn't apply to this time. It's not true. The Bible's a compilation of 66 books, all written. Each and every word has its truth, and each and every word applies to you. There is no part of that Bible that does not apply to each and every one of you here. You cannot pick and choose what you want to believe in and what you don't. You take it as a whole, or you take it none at all. So, you just can't be willfully ignorant. You can't become complacent. You have to know these things. You must take every word written as truth because that is what it is. And you also encounter people trying to get you to agree with these false narratives, these false teachings. They will actively work to get you to question your own faith. You must say, not only stay strong in your beliefs, but also work to show them the truth. That's what Paul is saying here. You see this in the aforementioned passage in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. While the message being told through a metaphor, very straightforward. Know the good fruit, and you'll pick out the bad. If you know your truth, you know the word, you'll know when people say things that go against it. So read it. Study it. Learn this book. Learn your truth. Find the good fruit so you can pick out that bad one. Because just as the passage states, bad trees do not bear good fruit. You find the bad fruit, you find the bad trees. It's plain and simple. You find, the, you know the true teachings and you'll know the false teachings. So once you pick out the fruit and that see that their message is false, identify them as what they are. Go back to verses one and two. The call, reprove them, rebuke them, exhort the truth. Put into practice the call that Paul gives us when you find these false teachers. You shouldn't just find them and walk away from them. Show both the 
false teachers and the people they're teaching to. What, is saying, what they're saying is wrong. It is not the truth. It is not God's truth. And let it be known. We need to reprove the actions of the false teachers and censor their myths. We need to rebuke the teachings and call them out for the lies that they have told. And we need to exhort the truth and spread the word to all those who are listening. We also see warnings against false teachers in Acts chapter 30, or Acts chapter 20, verse 30, sorry. Paul says, even from your own number, men will arise, distort the truth, in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul's talking to elders in Ephesus here. He's telling them that even from your own numbers, people within your church will arise against you and try to lead people astray. You see, Paul give this warning because you feel like the church congregation is the one place you'll feel safe. Why would the person sit next to me lie? Why would they spread false message? They come to church every week just like I do. They sit right next to me and listen to the same message. Why would they try to spread something false? It's really easy to get in that mindset. And then you'll start listening to what these people are saying. And then you'll start walking away from the gospel as well. That's why you need to know your truth. Know the good fruit. Know the word. So you can pick out the bad ones when they're told. It's as simple as that. Paul lays it out for us multiple times. It's how we do and how we fulfill this calling. We see the calls and warnings against false teachers constantly because of how important it is that we seek out false teachers, debunk their myths, and lead their followers back to the Lord. Nextly, I want to look at verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's Paul is continuing his charge to us to spread the word by telling us how we conduct ourselves as we do so. He lays it out. Three points. Starts off, by, though, by saying, as for you. It's the first three words. As for you. Set yourself apart from these false teachers I just talked about. Very easily, he could have left those three words out. It could have been inferred by the page indention that he was no longer speaking about the false teachers. But no. He included the as for you. Because he wants us to know we need to set ourselves apart from these people. Act on our own fruition. Do not fall into their myths. He says, as for you, endure suffering. Tells us to endure the suffering that we will face. Endure the hardships that will come. It's very easy for us to have bad things happen and turn away from God. You see it all the time. People will have something happen, whether it be loss of a loved one, loss of a job, any hardships that really follow. It's really easy to have those things happen and us blame God for them. Why would he let them happen if he's such a good God? Why would he allow these things to happen to these people? But Paul's telling us here, endure it. It will happen. Look at Paul. Imprisoned how many times? Ended up being killed for his beliefs. Kept the faith the whole way through. He endured his suffering. He's calling us to do the same thing. It's a quote I really like. It goes, just because you put syrup on something doesn't make it pancakes. It's a little funny, yeah. But think about it. Just because something seems bad and something bad is happening at the time 
doesn't mean good won't ultimately come from it. God has a plan. Everything happens for a reason. Just because this bad thing is happening in this instance doesn't mean that later down the line, good will not come from it. And that's what Paul's saying here. Endure it, for good will come. We also see his call to be sober-minded. Take this literally and say, don't get drunk. You know? But that's not what Paul's saying here. It's a little deeper than that. He's saying, remain level-headed. Keep a cool conscience. Don't let ourselves be captivated by any outside influence that would lead us away from sound judgment. We need to keep a clear mind. We see other translations of this verse have sober-minded worded as keep a clear mind. Or exercise self-control. It's as simple as that. Just remain level-headed. See in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Peter calls us to have a sober mind here too. He says, with minds that are fully alert and sober. He's saying that the grace of God will not fully appear until Jesus returns. And we are to set our hopes on that day. But we need to do so by being alert to the world around us and sober-minded within it. We see the parallels in these calls because Paul is calling for us to remain sober-minded in contrast to the evil of the world. He lays out in verses 3 and 4. Then we see Peter call. He reiterates this. And then he adds, even with the evil around us, while keeping our minds sober and alert, set your hopes on the return of Jesus Christ. Set your hopes on the grace to be brought. We then see the final call within this. It's the call to do the work of an evangelist. Sorry, pages got mixed up. We see his next instruction, do the work of an evangelist can be a little tricky because the full scope of a work of an evangelist is never laid out throughout here or the whole scripture. We are never told exactly what the work of an evangelist is. We know what an evangelist is to go out, to spread the word, to bring people to God, to teach. We're never told what exactly the work of them is, but we can infer we see that we are called to both be evangelists and do the work of them. We see the work of the evangelists can be narrowed down to consisting of spreading the message, continuing the gospel, but also learn the scripture, know your truth, and grow closer to God because that's what an evangelist must do to always be ready. Bringing it back to verse 2 where he says, be ready in season and out. That's the work of an evangelist. It's not only to spread the word. It's not only to teach others. It's to always be ready to do so. To know the scripture and know the truth. We see other calls to evangelize. One of the most famous ones, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, 
I am always with you to the very end of the age. It's the Great Commission. We all know it. It's posted up in the core. But you have to look at what he's saying. Jesus is saying here. He says, make disciples. To bring people to him. Show them the greatness that we found in him. Spread the word and evangelize. And then he says, of all nations. Don't discriminate. There's no one too lost to be found. There's no one too bad to be brought to the word. Everyone. Of all nations. Go and spread the word. Do so. Exactly as Paul as Paul commands us here to do. Spread the word and reiterate, reiterate these five verbs and do so with patience. That is the work of an evangelist. And then we see his call, fulfill the ministry. It's not an instruction in of itself. It's easy to be seen as it because of the list that's laid out where he says endure suffering, be, remain sober-minded, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill the ministry. But what he's saying when he says fulfill the ministry is he's more saying with these three things, you will fulfill the ministry. Because the ministry of Jesus is to spread the word. To fulfill the ministry is to bring people to Christ. And that's what these thing, three things will do. And this is how you do it. So he's saying by remaining sober-minded, by enduring your suffering, by doing the work of the evangelist, you will fulfill the ministry of Christ Jesus. Lastly, I really want to look at verses 6 and 8. This is my two, three favorite verses here. Not because of what is said, but I love these three verses because it really showcases Paul's skills as a writer. We see back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, you have the works of Virgil and Homer, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey. These ancient Greek literatures are often compared and contrasted to the writings of Paul. Scholars often debated who were the better writers. Was it Paul? Was it Virgil? Was it Homer? Two of the greatest authors to ever live have their works compared to that of Paul. And we see not only that, but modern classics like Paradise Lost, Dante's um, Divine Comedy. Not only do they cite the Apocalypse of John as intellectual reference, but they cite Paul as stylistic references. Some of the greatest works of literature ever, ever written are not only compared to Paul's writing, but use Paul's writing as an example and as a reference on how they went about writing. And it really shows in these three verses. Verses 6 through 8 say, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This section showcases the importance of the ministry. To call to serve as it relates to us. Paul is lifting the curtain of his life and showing what's in store for him after his death expressing that if we are to continue like he has and to conduct ourselves in the manner that he has expressed, that these riches and beauties will be bestowed upon us at the gates of heaven. He shows this when he writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. 
he describes his death as a simile, relating back to Old Testament times, calling himself an offering, indicating that in the pursuit of the furtherment of the gospel, he is laying his life down and accepting his death. We also see his passive wording here, which is a sharp contrast to the way Paul usually writes. Paul is known for his zealous and active vocabulary. That's the verbiage he usually uses. But we see in this verse, he says he's being poured out. He is not pouring his life out, but his life is being poured out. This passive imagery and this passive verbiage shows that God is the one in control here. This isn't by Paul's own fruition. Paul is not choosing this. God is using Paul. And that's what he's saying by when he says he's being poured out, showing that God is in control. And it's God's plan. So we must bear through it and stay the course. And then finish off verse 6, talking about his impending death, showing that he's aware of it. The time of my departure has come. He flows this into verse 7, showing that he's not scared of death, nor fearful of what's to come. He tells us, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's using his athletic verbiage here. It's what he's known for. It's what I was talking about. He, and by doing so, he showcases the type of calling we have. Spreading the message isn't something you sit on your couch and do. It's not a passive activity. You go out and do it. And that's why Paul so often uses this active and athletic verbiage to show us that we must actively partake in these callings. We cannot just sit back and be content. We must actively go out and work. It's very easy to look at this, the way Paul writes this, and say he's, you know, being a little arrogant, a little, um, what's the word? Doing it again. Sponge. Anyways, uh, you, you could say he's being a little arrogant or prideful here. But that's not at all the case. We see Paul, throughout all of his works, lay his life out. Let it be known. It's God in control. Did it a few sentences ago, and he does it multiple other times. He's simply stating that he's completed the course that God had laid out for him. We see back when Paul speaks to elders in Ephesus, again in Acts 20, in Acts 20:24, 20, he proclaims his humility. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying the good news of God's grace. See the athletic verbiage again in the race metaphor. Something he brings back. Something he spoke to people. Not even a letter he wrote down, but something he spoke to people in Ephesus, in Acts, saying, my only goal is to finish the race. He then reverts back to, in 2 Timothy, saying, I have finished the race. The race I was talking about, the one I wanted to complete, I have done. I have fulfilled the ministry of Christ. But we see the way he says it here. I consider my life worth nothing to me. His life is worth everything to God, but nothing to Paul. He lays it all out. He's the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. He completes the task the Lord Jesus has given him. He does not ask for thanks. He does not sit there pridefully. He humbly lays himself down and says, this is God's mission. This is Jesus Christ's task. I am simply the vessel to complete it. He isn't boasting his accomplishments. He isn't asking for praise. 
No, plain and simple. He's a servant of the Lord and nothing else, which is how we should carry ourselves as well. We also see Paul give glory to God and even more remove himself from the spotlight in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Here Paul gives all the glory to God in everything of his life, saying that by the grace of God, he became who he is. That without God, he is nothing. He's calling the grace of God an undeserved gift. He's laying his life out, being humble, setting himself out of the spotlight. He goes on to say this, that through the gift, through grace, didn't lead to passivity, but rather it motivated and encouraged hard work on Paul's part to continue the ministry, but only through the grace of God. That's what he's saying here in verse verse 7. He's not boasting, nor is he taking credit for God's work. We see that in two of the many examples of Paul's writing and speeches. He quite frequently devotes all that he has accomplished to God. So this verse 7 isn't a boast. He's not asking Timothy to use Paul as the example. He's simply laying it out to him. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. This is illustrated in verse 8 when Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. Starts us out with henceforth. Very important word here. Henceforth. Because. Only because I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And I've kept the faith. I have this laid out for me. You must remember that. This isn't Paul saying, there's laid out for me the crown of righteousness. He's not boasting that I'm God's favorite. I'm a favorite of his. And I have all this waiting for me. No, he's saying because of what he's done in his work on the earth. He has the crown of righteousness laid up for him. He's telling us about following in his footsteps, doing the works of Christ. We too can earn this crown of righteousness. Whether the crown be consisting of righteousness, alluding to the righteous state we achieve as believers, or it could be a literal crown, a crown of righteousness bestowed upon us. It seems more fitting through Paul's active verbiage throughout the letters that he is talking here about a physical crown. It makes more sense, him talking, I fought the good fight, and there is a crown waiting for me. Especially if you go back to the original Greek, he talks and uses the word stephanos, which meant crowning reef. So he's, and back in ancient Greek times, a crowning reef was bestowed upon victors of combat. So based on the original scriptures and the translations throughout time, it's more fitting that he is being bestowed this physical crown. The importance of this being, Paul shows us here, the reward we receive from Christ by fulfilling the ministry, by going and preaching the word and making disciples of all, you'll be given the crown that Paul was. We see this evidence when Paul says, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing, meaning all true believers who love Christ 
and long for his return will receive this reward. It's not specially reserved for the favorites. It's not specially reserved for the ones who do the good works. We're not Catholic. It's for everyone, for all who have loved his appearing. It's plain and simple. Paul lays it all out for us. And then I really want to look back at verse 7 again, where Paul talks about finishing the good fight. I have fought the good fight. Paul is saying here that this is the good fight. This is the fight we need to, this is the war we need to wage. That's what he's saying. That there's no other cause that he would rather lay his life for. That's how we know he is happy with his death. Because he knows he has done right by Christ and what is waiting for him. Like I said, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who fights the good fight, keeps the faith, finishes the race, will be laid up the crown of righteousness when they reach the heaven's gates. So, in conclusion, I want to reiterate, we cannot become complacent in our faith. We must take every word of the Bible and apply it to our own lives because that's what it's there for. I know we had deacon voting recently. Take that as an example. In 1 Timothy, Paul lays out deacon qualifications. But for those of us who don't want to be deacons, why would we want to listen to that? Why would we read that? It doesn't apply to us. I don't want to be a deacon. Why do I need to know how to conduct myself as one? Why wouldn't you? Why would you not want to conduct yourself as a leader of the church? Be the example. Be the most godly man that Paul lays out for us that we can be. And even the women. Paul writes about how the wives of deacons should conduct themselves. Why would you not want to be that? Why would you not want to be the example? Don't settle for complacency. Don't become content in where you are. Always strive to be better because the faith can always grow and that's what you need to do. So, I want to reiterate Paul's call. We have our charge by Paul to go out, to preach, teach others the word, to reprove false teachings, rebuke the sins of man, exhort the word of God, and always be ready to do so and do it with complete patience. Know that you will face the false teachers. Know that there will be those who oppose you. But also know how to conduct yourselves, being sober-minded, endure the suffering, and do the work of evangelists. For through all these things, the crown of righteousness will be bestowed upon you at heaven's gates. Thank you.